Hello everyone, welcome to Luke Law, a quick deep dive into a folklore topic where I share some of the stories from around the world that have piqued my interest. Welcome to an unexpected Easter special, all a bit of an impulsive spring celebration, which is pretty appropriate really. In collaboration with Wanda Frazier's dark art series, we've gone all spring lately and leaned into some of the art of the fur folk on Fridays, as well as a St. Patrick's Day special. For this special, it's simple enough. We have a quick look at some pre-Christian traditions that have endured in the background to the modern day, then showcase some of the Aos Shi in both original and modern context. Spring has sprung on the Northern Hemisphere, everyone. Let's enjoy it. The surprisingly simple explanation for chocolate eggs. Easter is one of those weird things that Christianity kind of hoovered up as it absorbed its way across Europe like the theological blob, yet a weird amount of paganism survived this one. Christianity still has its own thing going on here, there's some question of the resurrection being moved to coincide with Easter as a link to the rebirth of celebrating the spring equinox, but Lent is very much the church's own thing. There's also a lot of festivals surrounding the traditions, which I don't really want to detract from. But that leads us to the relative scarcity of mildly blasphemous chocolate Jesuses to eat around this time, which leads us to what's going on with Easter eggs. The pagan clue remains in the name, to be fair, while also known as Ostara, the Germanic goddess Yostra or Istra was the goddess of spring and summer, and the egg is explicitly her symbol, representing fertility and new life like she does, the pagan brickwork under the Christian wallpaper is all about welcoming of spring and the rebirth of the world. Rabbits and chicks are also Easter's symbols, and it's not much of a leap to work out where Easter gets its name. Check out the Easter displays in stores next time you swing through, and beneath the jolly bunting there's a cornucopia of traditional pre-Christian celebration in stealth mode. In appearance, Easter is said to be a maiden old enough to bear a child, but not yet a mother. Much more than that, though, is lost to time or else buried. Eostra is a dancer who comes dressed in flowers and new growth, full of joy but not to be trifled with, as they can turn with the suddenness and danger of spring weather turning bad. According to the Brothers Grimm, she'll be seen riding a horse with a collection of keys on her belt as she goes to collect fresh brook water and the dew of plants to be used as a holy water in youth-renewing rituals. Eostra can also be traced back to Eos, the Greek goddess of dawn. Both in turn can be traced back to Proto-Indo-European goddesses of spring. What the spring equinox has meant to humanity for its entire existence is a long chain of varied traditions that modern revivals in the secular societies of European heritage countries means a lot of these much older original cultures are still at least a little present today. To she or not to she. Let's talk about the fur folk a little. First, let's get out of the way why I'm calling them anything but furries. Episode 4 of Luke Law, oh, this has been going on for a while now, was entirely about the good folk, and it gave a foundation for this. What people now call fairies are the Aos she, or just the she, being of the other world, and there's quite a lot of discussion how calling them the more modern names may well be an insult. As a part of the Easter special, I wanted to go over some more modern terms used to refer to the she, and give some context rooted in the older stories. When it comes to names, respect is everything. More accurately, disrespect is everything to avoid, as angering otherworldly beings tends to go pretty badly wrong. Modern terms can be very inadvertently disrespectful, as explained more in episode 4 of Luke Law, 
with furries and the fae. They're very interesting descriptors that have taken on interesting meanings in pop culture, but the origin of those specific phrases is from the 1400s, and was an attempt to tie the she into classical Greek storytelling. It can be somewhat an unwelcome attempt to repurpose them. Kind of, let's make the local stories fit in with proper literature, and that's a bit iffy. Traditional honorifics are about being polite and complimentary. The fur folk. The good neighbours. The seely white. Seely, a very common term for the assorted Ayoshi who represent spring, summer, new growth, and those less dangerous of their kind, and please, please note that less dangerous is not the same as safe. This was originally from one of those honorifics. White, simply meaning spirit, a term which has warped across pop culture starting with Tolkien to now mean more some sort of undead creature, and seely coming from an old Anglo-Saxon word, selig or selic, which means roughly happy and or prosperous. To call the Scottish-based she a seely white is supposed to be very flattering, so a great one to remember if you wander somewhere you shouldn't have in the Highlands. Which leads us to the term only from the 1800s, unseely. If the seely are the court of summer, the fur folk of the day, the good neighbours who may be inclined to do a favour or two for the mortals, then the unseely are the court of winter, the fur folk of the night, the neighbours who want nothing to do with the mortals willing to attack trespassers on sight. The idea is to categorise these she as those who would attack a human in the wilds on sight, Now, to call them unseely is a multifaceted insult. First, it's a term 200 years old. By many accounts, the older and more powerful the she you encounter, the greater the insult such a thing could be. Then, you're taking one of the most pleasant honorifics the fur folk like and enjoy, and spitting in their face telling them they're the opposite of this. Now, calling something like the Nuklevi or a Redcap a bad and unprosperous neighbour probably isn't going to make much of a dent, Being noticed by something which hates humans more than mortal comprehension is a drop in the ocean, but it still feels like being polite in passing is probably a good call. Personally, I love urban fantasy stories making use of these terms, and being able to come up with a good story is a great way to stay on the right side of the she, so being able to explain yourself may amuse them to the point where they don't turn you into a fashion accessory. But remember that those of the other world are not just people from some other place. Never forget that they are not us. They have their own rules, they have their own morals, and they have their own civilization. All that groundwork being laid, let's go look at some she. They might be lucky, you not so much. Leprechauns may not quite be what you would expect. Well, unless you like horror movies. Strangely, you're better off leaning into Leprechaun 4 in space than you are Darby O'Gill and the Little Folk. I'll circle back around to this. First up, the brass tacks. A leprechaun is the archetypal little person. They are most often seen as tiny old men either in red clothes or the more commonly known green. Pop culture depicts them as a somewhat jolly figure. And that isn't too wrong, just a little misleading as to what you really have to deal with here. They are famous cobblers, for example. Hearing their hammering as they work in the wild places where there really shouldn't be the tapping sounds of a cobbler at work is a way to work out where a leprechaun is active. They're such dedicated cobblers because they're such dedicated dancers. Leprechauns love to dance and revel, 
And as such, they like humans who do the same. So leprechauns, sometimes alone, maybe in groups of other leprechauns, or in mixed big parties of Aoshi, they like to lure away mortals to come party in the other world. Party until they physically cannot go on. There's a common tale you'll find told across Ireland of a woman lured away by a leprechaun who was returned seven years later after every last toe had worn away to nothing from non-stop dancing. Besides being cobblers, leprechauns are probably most famous for their gold though. The pot of it at the end of the rainbow. The thing here is, they don't seem to need that gold, and it mostly seems to exist to mess with greedy mortals. While looking like tiny old men, leprechauns are agile, fast, supernaturally lucky, and have the ability to vanish at will. They appear to use their gold to lure in unwary humans who they are happy to teach a lesson about respect and humility. Apparently, should you manage to capture a leprechaun, you'll be offered free wishes in exchange for letting them go. Now, I'm not saying something like this is impossible in the old stories, as the she have to follow their own laws and traditions, but I will point out that stories of leprechaun wishes seem to go very dangerously awry, to the point I suspect that if you should catch one, it wants to be caught just so it could mess with you. There are centuries, if not aeons, old, monkey paw on legs, made out of equal parts cunning and mischief. It may actually not be possible to truly capture one, and the witches are a game to try and trick disrespectful humans, where losing results in a lifelong curse of terrible luck. Just leave well alone is the advice. Your greed is their chance to have a good time at your expense. Leave out an offering of their favourite treat, the Irish moonshine poteen, and don't go following strange sounds of music out into the wild places. It might sound alluring, your feet may be ready to dance by themselves, it's not safe. Now, the rather infamous horror movie franchise helmed by the massively underrated and brilliant Warwick Davies. Well known for its B-movie aesthetic and incredible excess, going from space to the hood, have you actually watched the original one, or at least seen it recently? It's a surprisingly good run at how dumb it is for humans to mess with a leprechaun, hitting quite a lot of notes of folklore with a good amount of dark undercurrents. You could do far worse than giving the first leprechaun a watch. The Red Caps of Gnomes and the Red Cap itself. Pop culture, and how it assimilates folklore, can be a funny thing. I shouldn't need to explain the existence of garden gnomes to people. Apparently the name Gnome is an acronym for Guarding Peacefully Over Mother Earth, although that may just be something that was retrofitted and rammed onto there by a pretentious writer. They do seem to be a relatively recent interpretation of assorted little folk stories though, which can worry me quite a lot. See how they almost only ever have a red cap? Well, there's a type of goblin called a red cap, so the good news here is there's a very likely solid folklore link to garden gnomes having their caps be red, but the good news is now over at that. A red cap is a vicious goblin creature that, if you're unlucky enough, can be found at historic battlegrounds and in ruins with terrible bloody histories. They love to scrounge up old murder weapons and they wear iron boots, which on the plus side means they're easy to hear when they start running, but on the downside you may have noticed they don't have the usual sheet aversion to iron. The cap they're named after gets its red colour from being dipped into blood. Human animal, found that way or else helped to die by the red cap. They mop up blood and they have an incentive to make sure there's always more victims. Should a red cap's cap dry out, the red cap dies. If you can deprive a red cap of victims or else trap them, you can kill them this way. But the only other safe suggestion, the only real safe suggestion, is avoid. 
The iron boots charging towards you are a very good audible cue it's time to start running away. A fairy tale of cowslips. Okay, it's the Easter special and I've just used it as a soapbox for murder. Let's end this one with flowers. There's a traditional fairy tale of a girl in Lincolnshire whose life became linked to the new growth of spring. Across the winter her health began to fade and there was nothing anyone could do to help her. Spring came late that year and as much as everyone hoped she would live to see it, the girl told her mother that should spring not come the very next day of April she would surely die. But spring did come and with it the girl's vitality returned. As new life budded everywhere, her strength began to return. While the sun shone, her energy would return, her parents helping her sit outside to help speed up her miraculous recovery. As this life bloomed, so too did she. With the cowslips in full flower, she was full of vigour, and somehow grew more beautiful each day until all the flowers surrounding the house had finished fully blooming. But this was no natural recovery. One day, a young man hoping to woo her picked up one of the cowslips to present to her as a token of affection, not knowing what he was doing. The young woman was devastated as she took the flower. A spell broken, and a price now about to be paid. As the cowslip she held died, she too followed it. Her health declined all through the rest of that day, and through the night, until the next morning, she disappeared to become a part of the season of spring itself. Bit of a bittersweet one, but certainly a spring story. That's all for this episode of Loot Lore. The Fur Folk are a topic Brennan doesn't much like to cover, so everyone please be extra nice to him as he's been stuck dragged along with mine and Wanda's spring she shenanigans. There's an interesting theory that got raised by a fan about that. It may not be that the good neighbours don't like us, and instead that the seely whites of the Winter Court may in fact like us quite a lot, and that itself is the problem with getting their attention. If you want to discuss that, come find Wanda or Luke Law places to chat. Wanda's Irish blood seems to carry her through, and I'm either the right level of respectful to get away with discussing the ARC, or else I'm just mistaken as some sort of troll or ogre due to my size. If you do want to contact me about the she or anything else, there's the show's dedicated email, lukelawgsg at gmail.com and the general show email, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. Both myself and the main show are really easy to find on Facebook and Twitter if you want to make day-to-day contact, as well as a very active Instagram account a lot of the community gets involved with. The Luke Law Instagram is still a little contact light, but it'll more likely be a place where A or She discussion is possible. If you want to support the show directly, definitely check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. It'll get you access to all sorts of GSG goodies at different tiers, my incentive being that Luke Lore episodes go out to patrons a bit early. As ever though, the absolute best thing anyone can do to support the show is to give it a listen, share this around if you think you may know someone who may be interested, leave a review if you get the chance to help signal boost me, and most of all I simply hope you enjoy what I'm doing here. Goodbye for now. <laughs>